welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Once again, how many semicolons are necessary in a JavaScript file? The old, old questions always coming back, always new, always old or something. I'm going to stop and get right on to our guest. Actually, before I get to our guest, I want to make sure you know who the other voices are in this podcast. I'm, of course, Richard Littower. Hello, everyone. Your indefatigable host, except today when I'm slightly tired due to COVID, but hopefully that just means a more in-depth conversation. I'm okay, by the way. Don't worry. And we also have on this podcast today, Justin Dorfman calling in from LA. Justin, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good to be back. Took a little hiatus, but yeah, really excited for this conversation. Always glad to have you here. And our guest today is actually a return guest. We have had Nicholas on before. That's right. Nicholas Zakis. Nicholas is one of the main maintainers of ESLint. ESLint is a really awesome library that helps you figure out how to style your JavaScript files. It's used by a small number of people. I mean, it hasn't had major traction and only gets 27 million downloads a week, which is intense. And so this is a very high profile tool that's used by many, many different dependencies around the world, which means it has run into all of the issues that happen in open source. Maintainers burning out, way too many first-time contributors doing Hacktoberfest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Nicholas Zekas, before we get going into the conversation, how are you doing today? Thanks. I'm doing well. Happy to be back. Happy to have you here. Last time we talked in October of 2021, which was roughly a year ago as this is being recorded. And we talked about the issue of open source maintenance and governance and sustainability for open source. Now, I really loved having you on the podcast because some of the people we have in the podcast are policymakers. Some of the people we have are designers. Some of the people are academics. But it's always excellent to have straight out 100% open source maintainers. Now, can you remind me a few things about ESLint and your work there? How did it start? How much time a week do you dedicate to it? And did I mess up with describing what it does? You're pretty close. I usually describe ESLint as a tool that helps you find and fix problems in your JavaScript code. And those problems can range from stylistic issues. Somebody didn't indent correctly or use the right number of semicolons. But it can also range all the way up to security issues, potential runtime issues, basically anything where you can look at your code and say, that's not quite right. ESLint can help you find that. And that's actually where it came from initially. Back when I was working at Box, we ran into an issue that made it to production where all of our AJAX requests, or at least They used to be called AJAX requests. I guess people today would maybe call them fetch requests or network requests in general. But back in the day, they were called AJAX requests were failing for a certain number of our customers. And it turned out what happened was because we were still at that point supporting IE6 or IE5, one of those Basically, the XML HTTP request object was tied to ActiveX. And so if a company had ActiveX disabled by policy on their network, then the AJAX requests would fail. And this didn't affect most customers. 
who were using newer browsers. And we actually had a workaround for this case, but a newer developer wasn't aware of that, checked in some code that wouldn't work elsewhere. And after that, we had this mad dash to say like, okay, how do we make sure everybody knows that that's not the way to do it and that there is a better way to do it that will work regardless of what the policy settings were on Internet Explorer? And that kind of started my mind down this path of, well, how do we identify patterns in code? And at the time, the best thing that we had was to use regular expressions in a PHP script. But it seemed like there had to be a better way to do such a thing. And one of the PHP developers at Box had actually written a little linter that parsed the PHP into a syntax tree and then would poke at the syntax tree to figure out if there was a pattern that they didn't want. And I realized I could probably do the same thing with JavaScript. And a couple months later, the first version of ESLint was released into the wild. Awesome. Thank you so much as someone who uses ESLint continually all the time. I really appreciate this work and the fact that it's continued to grow. It is a massive project at this point. Obviously, there are larger ones such as Node, which are very front user facing and do a ton of work. Can you tell me roughly how many maintainers work on the project or how many contributors do you have? Yeah. So at the moment, there are three people on the technical steering committee, which is basically the core team that's looking at issues and pull requests and also doing the majority of the development. We have a couple of reviewers, which are like our senior members of the team. And we have now about four or five active committers, which are the more junior members of the team. So basically around 10 people helping out on a day-to-day basis. 10 people on a day-to-day basis. How many emerita do you have? How many people have contributed to the project on GitHub? On GitHub, we are up above, I think, a couple hundred contributors. Um, But we also have a couple dozen or so just alumni of the ESLint team. So people who were actually committers or reviewers or technical steering committee members and who ended up stepping away from the project. So it's been a little over nine years at this point. So there's definitely been a lot of contributions along the way. You keep using this interesting word, steering committee and technical committee. So over the last nine years, you've instituted some really amazing governance things. And we got into this in depth in the previous podcast we did. That was podcast number 101. You can go to podcastthesaneoss.org slash 101 to see that. Briefly, I'd be really curious if you could talk a bit about I know you pay maintainers or they can volunteer to get a certain amount of money for PRs and the like. Can you talk about how that works as part of your governance strategy? Yeah. So it is basically using the same framework we talked about last time with maybe a a couple of adjustments here and there. Exciting. First and foremost, everybody on the team. So that's the committers, reviewers, technical steering committee. Everybody gets paid an hourly rate for their contributions and Contributions can be anything that benefits the project. So that can be contributing code, that can be contributing documentation, that can be reviewing issues and pull requests, attending meetings, 
helping people on Discord, helping people on GitHub discussions. If people ever go to conferences or meetings representing the team, they can also charge for that. So everybody gets a per hour rate. The committers are $50 per hour. That's United States dollars. And then the reviewers and the technical steering committee are $80 an hour. And in addition to that, we also have something we call the contributor pool, where every month we review all of the contributions made to any of the ESLint repositories. We also check Discord to see who's been very active. And we set aside a certain amount each month to award to non-team members who have made non-trivial contributions to ESLint. So once again, that can be a pull request. That can be leaving some really helpful comments on issues, pull requests, RFCs. That can be helping answer questions in Discord. Once again, anything that is beneficial to the project that is done by a non-team member They're eligible for payment out of the contributor pool. And we let people know generally either at at the end of the month or the beginning of the next month that they have been nominated. And the team kind of decides what the amount is based on the impact of the contribution. So in general, we really want to make sure that we have people being paid for important contributions to the project regardless of where they're coming from, if they're officially on the team or not. I heard a rumor that not only do you pay contributors, but you also pay your downstream dependencies. Is that true or not? That is true. So we made a decision the beginning of last year that it was time to start supporting our dependencies because there is this weird kind of stratification in open source where there are some projects that get a lot of visibility and therefore are able to attract sponsorships. And ESLint is lucky enough to be in that tier in the JavaScript community. But we are built on a bunch of other projects that are doing things that have saved us a lot of time from needing to build ourselves. And so we felt like because we were in the position where we were not spending all of the money that we were receiving every month, that we were in a unique position to start passing some of that along to our dependencies that in all likelihood, we'll never be able to raise as much money as ESLint itself. But we would really hate for those projects to go away because we depend on them so much. And so passing along some of our sponsorships down the line to those dependencies is something we've been doing for, I think, a little over a year and a half now. So thanks for bringing this up. I'm really curious about this. I want to couch where you are a bit more clearly. So ESLint uses Open Collective. And full disclosure, I also work for Open Collective. So just saying. What's interesting about that is that ESLint is one of the more successful projects. They've raised over half a million dollars over the past few years on Open Collective. Currently, they're sitting on a few hundred thousand dollars. So you really do have money in the bank to spend. 
I'm really curious about where that money comes from that gave you this huge extra surplus because most projects struggle with getting money in the first place. And you're talking about passing it on. And so I'm curious, how do you raise so much? What is it about ESLint that makes that possible? So I don't think that we did anything particularly special. I do think that we are lucky in a lot of ways that we have had champions inside of companies who were working within their company to get ESLint support. Like right from the start, when we were thinking about opening up an open collective account, we had several companies who said, hey, if you do that, we will immediately initiate a thousand dollars a month sponsorship for you. And that was really what got us over that hump of getting open collective set up for ESLint initially. It was like, well, this seems kind of like free money. People are saying, if you do this, we will give you money. So let's do it and let's see what happens. And in the beginning, we were hesitant to start spending the money because we didn't know how reliable that source of income would be. And we also didn't feel like we were making enough so that we could pay people a reasonable amount. So in the beginning, we decided to just sit and wait for a while and see what happened with fundraising. And before we started paying people, we had a little cushion already. We had, I think, maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 in the bank. And then when we started paying people, it was a really small amount because most people already had full-time jobs. They felt like they didn't need the extra money, but we felt like we couldn't continue to accept money if we weren't going to spend it because I'm sure sponsors would come back around and say, hey, wait a second, we're giving you all this money. We don't see it going anywhere. Why should we keep giving you money? So as we started, we were looking at how are we actually going to spend this money? And we tried a few different things that we didn't like before we ultimately ended up with the system that we have today. We tried having a halftime maintainer, which we talked about a bit on the previous episode that didn't quite work out. And we had in our mind at one point, let's save up for a full-time maintainer. And when that didn't work, we were saving up for a part-time maintainer. And that's where most of the money was going. And then when that didn't work, we had our reset. And because we had been saving for a full or part-time maintainer, we were sitting on top of this pile of money. And eventually when we got to the system that we have today we realized, hey, we are sitting on a bunch of money. We don't need to be so tight with how we're spending the money. Even if we spend up to the total amount we make each month, we still have money in the bank to fall back on just in case. And we kind of fell back on this idea that as long as we had enough money to continue paying people at the current rate for another year, then we don't need to be so shy about spending the money that we have. And that's when we started to go into larger projects. Like we just completed a complete website redesign and implementation that we just straight up hired freelancers to do. And that turned out fantastic. And now we've actually started on our next big project, which was 
hiring a technical writer to revamp our documentation. I really want to congratulate you and just point out some things that coming up to me so much in this. One of those, I just drastically disagree with your statement that we didn't do anything special. To me, your entire story talks about the ability of someone who's in it for the long game and someone who has a community that's willing to fail because it seemed like there were things that didn't work and you continually just, okay, that didn't work. Let's try this again. Hey, that didn't work. Let's try this again. And that's amazing and rare and awesome. Another awesome thing that I'm noticing is the strength of getting funding from large corporations before you actually had the thing set up. So they already knew about you or you had already been good at talking to them and knowing that they were there and saying, if we set this up, will you pay us? Which is great. And also something most open source projects don't do, I think. Another part of that that's really fascinating is managing expectations with funders and sponsors and saying, we're going to stop taking money until we figure out what to do with it. And when sponsors give money, they have an expectation that things change quickly and saying, well, we're saving up for this and maybe it won't work, maybe it won't work. But continuing to hold that line of the strength of the project outside of the influence of the sponsors. I think that's a huge amount of labor and effort I'm seeing. So I just really wanted to congratulate you for that and maybe underscore that that's what was popping up for me because this is such a rare project where I haven't seen that sort of thing happen well in other projects. I can only think of one that decided to stop taking funding for a while, which is Homebrew, which also had a similar trajectory with Mike McQuaid. We've also had him on the podcast as well. I didn't really have a question in that. I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on my reflections though. Well, it's interesting because I think for me living it, a lot of what we did was just a natural progression based on where things were going. And as I like to say, just people acting like adults. And I think we've been very lucky on ESLint that we have been able to attract and retain people on the team who are nice and thoughtful care about the project as a whole and are willing to put personal thoughts and biases aside and just say like, okay, when I'm wearing my ESLint hat, I want to talk about what is best for the project, not what is best for me personally or some other itch that I want to scratch. And so having a bunch of people that I can go to and say, hey, it seems like this isn't working. What do you think if we try something else and having people come back with like, yeah, you know, it does seem like that's not really working. What if we try this? And what if we try that? And just being willing to experiment and speak up and contribute and just keep in mind that we want the project to be of the first and foremost importance and really couching all of the decisions as we go forward doing that. And also doing it in a way that we all are proud of and comfortable with. Like We try to be as transparent as possible about everything that we're doing. Constantly posting on our blog when we change how we're spending money or how we're receiving money. And just trying to be open and out there. Again, from the inside, to me, it it all just seems logical. But uh, upon reflection of your reflections, I can definitely see how from the outside, like, wow, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in there. Do you think there's a correlation between being a OpenJS Foundation 
project and doing very well on Open Collective. For instance, you have Webpack that is an OpenJS Foundation project, has raised over, I think, 1.5 million, 1.3 million. I'm not 100% sure, but around that. What's happening within the OpenJSF? Is there like a, hey, you should join Open Collective or some type of fundraising platform because that's going to really help you make this project, give it a longevity? So I don't think that there is, again, anything magic about being an OpenJS Foundation project. ESLint joined long before accepting any sponsorships. I can't speak to the timeline around Webpack, but may have been similar. I'm not 100% sure about that. And OpenJS itself has been fairly neutral around sponsorship activities. They kind of leave it to the projects themselves. But there isn't necessarily a lot of encouragement to do it, not a lot of discouragement to do it. It's the okay, if you guys think that it's something you want to do, go for it. The way that I think about this is more that being in a foundation is one type of a reputational checkmark that an open source project can get. Because really, as an independent project, part of your challenge is to convince companies that you are worthwhile to donate money to. Because from the project's yeah. and the company's perspective, they might have an engineer saying, hey, Justin has this really cool project that we actually use a lot here. And I'd like to support him. So can we start donating money to him? And the company's going to be like, well, who's this Justin guy? Like, <laughs> what? Why would I pay money to this Justin guy? I don't know. Just because you chose to use his open source project. How do I know that he's not just going to take that money and I don't know, blow it bubblegum? I love bubblegum, by the way. I heard that about you. So I wanted to throw that in. It's really then upon the project to build up a reputation to the point where a company would want to contribute to that project. And if you're a company and you're looking at, let's say you have $10,000 to donate and you see, okay, there's this one independent project that's maintained by one person who I've never heard of before. And then there's this other project that is part of the OpenJS Foundation. The nod might go to the OpenJS Foundation project because you feel like, hey, that's somebody that is serious about this project, is probably going to keep maintaining it, is aware of the legal ramifications of the open source project, and therefore is a safer bet that it's not going to end up embarrassing us as a company if they end up tweeting that we are sponsoring them. Right. Uh, that's just one reputational checkmark, right? I mean, there are other ones too, but I think that in terms of sponsorships, that is what the OpenJS Foundation gives you. Cool. I like that you mentioned other checkmarks. All of this reflects a huge amount of work and labor on behalf of the projects that are trying to get money or trying to just be sustainable, whether or not money is involved. Not every project needs a huge amount of money. You had a blog post that went up on humanwhocodes.com, your blog, 
on June 14th about sponsoring dependencies, the next step in open source sustainability, where you talk about the work that you've been doing in Islam for the past year and a half, you and the rest of the Islam team, to pass on the buck, just sort of giving money downstream to your dependencies. And when we think about foundations or we think about sponsor connections and relationships, what we're doing is talking about projects that have the bandwidth to do that or the skill or really the charisma to do that, right? Large projects that are user-facing that people want to get engaged with as opposed to, say, LeftPad before it went viral or OpenSSL before it broke and before Heartbleed. Can you talk a bit about the discrepancy or the difference between large charismatic projects and smaller projects and how you see the role of large projects in funding the smaller ones? Yeah, so the way that I like to describe this is we all want to make sure that open source projects get sponsored, probably in a way that's relative to the value that they are providing to everybody. And what a lot of the focus has been on is how do we get more people and companies to contribute money to projects. There's a lot of blog posts. I've seen a lot of talks on this topic. Why do companies contribute to open source projects? What makes them do that? How can we convince more companies to do that? But that is really a top of the funnel problem. That is, how can we get more money into the system as a whole. But there's also a bottom of the funnel problem, which is when there is money in the system, how do we make sure that it gets equitably distributed throughout the system? And I did write in the blog post about OpenSSL and Heartbleed. And if you think about this, I think OpenSSL is a great example of this problem. It is a foundational piece of internet infrastructure. It's used all over the place, clients, servers, everywhere. And at the time of Heartbleed, it had one maintainer and $2,000 a year in sponsorships. And for the importance of that project, that was obviously way too little. And... Yes, after Heartbleed, Linux Foundation stepped up. But why did we get to that point? Well, we got to that point because OpenSSL is largely a dependency of a larger project. It's not something that you as a developer go and install most of the time on your own. So it's not top of mind that you're using it. It's a transitive dependency on something else that you're using probably every day. And so the visibility into the importance of that package was really hidden until it broke. And of course, that is a really important package. But there are a ton of smaller packages that are important for larger projects, even if not for the entire internet, that would also really hurt the system if it were to have a bug or a security issue or anything of that sort. And so we spent a lot of time on ESLint thinking about this problem. Like what would happen 
if some of the things that we depended on all of a sudden just stopped working. Like, yes, we could pin our version to a working version, but then what will we do going forward? And as we were looking around, just said, you know, some of these projects actually have their own open collective pages set up. And so that would make it very easy for us to contribute to them. And we went on backyourstack.com, also thanks to the folks at Open Collective for that, and started looking for the projects that we were depending on that had Open Collective pages and just said, as a project, what is good for open source in general is also good for ESLint. And we believe that it's beneficial to us to make sure that our dependencies are well supported so that they're there for us to use. And hopefully, once we let people know that we are sponsoring these projects, that will also create a little more visibility for the projects and maybe get them more sponsorships as well. Because open source in general is this collective of projects that are built on top of projects that are built on top of projects that are built on top of projects. And we have no problem giving that recognition when we're talking about what the project is built upon. There are plenty of times where people say like, yeah, you know, this is possible because we are building on top of V. So we're really thankful for V. It's a great project and this wouldn't be possible without it. Well, recognition is great, but it doesn't pay the bills. And so it seems like the next step is in addition to giving that recognition to the projects that are enabling your project is to start sharing some of the wealth, to start taking some of the sponsorships that you were lucky enough to pull in and redistributing those downstream. I obviously love that. It's the best. I like the idea of giving back and of recognizing that other projects need help. I have a small thought that keeps popping up, one of which in your blog, for instance, you say that the heart bleed bug essentially made the web unsafe until it was discovered and fixed. And for me, I think that could maybe be also said as the heart bleed bug did nothing until it was discovered. And it was actually everyone depending on that project, which made the web unsafe. Open source normally has provided as is in some part of the license. And the expectation being that you can use this, but you know, don't depend on me for anything. I wonder how you feel about giving financial support downstream indiscriminately without recognizing that some projects either don't have the governance to deal with money or may not want it or don't fit into our mold of what dependencies look like. I'm always kind of curious about this question, especially given the news that came out this week where there's a cybersecurity bill is being put to Congress about having federal money go into open source dependencies, which to me is all about security, 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 but for whom? And that seems like added work for maintainers that now they have to do. And maybe they just wanted to make something small and move on to another project. Do you have any thoughts on that sort of view of dependencies as being a non-homogenous list of all sorts of diverse projects and views around money, et cetera. I feel like I've lost the thread, but you get it. I completely get your point. So one of the things that we did on ESLint 
when we were looking at sponsoring dependencies. So the ones that already had open collective pages set up, we just initiated those because those folks were asking for donations. And that seemed like, hey, if they're asking for it and they have plans for it, great, let's do it. And I don't believe that it is necessarily incumbent on the donor to worry too much about whether the project has a plan for that money or not. Because if you are getting value from something, I think that it is incumbent on you to try to compensate people for the value that you're getting. As it is with shareware or any try before you buy situation. It's ethically your job to give back, but it's not ethically your job to decide whether or not that project should take money. Well, whether or not the project has decided how they will spend that money. Got it. Thank you. So if Justin starts up a project and wants to spend all that money on bubblegum, hey, more power to Justin. I'm just saying, hey, Justin, really love your project. Here's a little something for all of your hard work. Chew.js. Never, ever has he chewed bubblegum on this podcast, by the way. Just saying, I've never seen him actually chewing gum on this podcast. One day. It's because he's a professional. Exactly. But I do think that there are different expectations when a project puts forth a plan. Say, hey, maybe that project is just accepting donations because, hey, you know, I'm spending my spare time working on this. It would be nice if it wasn't for free. Well, great. Maybe another project says specifically, we are saving these funds in order to do what have you, in order for me to be able to take three months to get the next version of the project out. And maybe as a sponsor, you give them a little bit more than you do the other project. And maybe if a project has full-time maintainers, maybe you donate a little more to that than you would the others. I personally am of the belief that if you are getting value from something that somebody made for you without you paying for it, and you are capable of sending some money that way, that would be a nice thing to do. Now, on the other hand, the other part of your question is not everybody wants to maintain something that they open source. That's the the as-is part of the license. And we actually, the ESLN project, part of our efforts were we identified projects that we wanted to support financially who did not already have an open collective page. And we reached out to them and just said, hey, we are starting this new program where we want to donate money to the dependencies that we use. And we've identified your project as one that's very important to us and we would like to financially support If you would like to set up an open collective page, we will initiate a monthly donation to you immediately. And some people said no. They came back and said, for whatever reason, not comfortable accepting money, don't really want to get involved with that part of open source, glad that ESLint is using the project and finds it worthwhile. We appreciate the offer, but we are going to decline. 
And again, that was for a variety of reasons. And we said, okay, that's fine. Like, we're not going to force you to take money if you don't want to. And I'm sure that there will be other projects out there as well. But I think that we're in a situation where it is much better to have that be an opt out where people can say thanks, but no thanks, rather than needing it necessarily to be an opt in. Were you a little offended when they said no? Or were you just like, eh, whatever? I was not a little offended. I was a little confused because I just thought like, why would anybody give up free money? Right. To me, I love passive income and I have passive income where I'm getting $10 a month for the ad on my website. And I'm super happy about that $10 a month. So I was a little confused, but not offended. (laughs) Cool. Well, I like your honesty. Makes sense. I like how you say you're confused why people would give away free money. To me, at any point, you could just talk to the other people on the steering committee or the people in charge of the Open Collective and say, hey, should we give all the money to ourselves and buy more gum? And so it's funny that you say that when you're also giving some of your money away on behalf of the project, which I guess is the ethical imperative that you're showing, which is excellent and admirable and laudable and the best. And for people who want to read more about this in depth, do go check out the blog post on Human Who Codes. In particular, check out the practical sponsorship pledge that Nicholas goes and encourages people to do. One, budget to give away 10% of your funding to your dependencies. I like to think of that as a tithe, although that may not sync well with everyone. Two, start with the have-nots and work your way up. Who doesn't have money that could use it? Ask them. If we all ask together, maybe those who say no will eventually say yes. And reward excellence, which is also awesome. Reward the projects that are really great. Which reminds me of Spotlight, which is something we have to make time for. And we are running out of time, which is why I tried to wrap up this conversation before we let you go, Nicholas. Besides humanwhocodes.com, besides ESLint, which is available on github.com slash ESLint slash ESLint, as well as on the website, which is new, which is ESLint.org. Where can people follow your words and ESLint online? You can find me on Twitter at Slicknet, S-L-I-C-K-N-E-T. You can follow ESLint on Twitter at getESLint. Unfortunately, ESLint username was taken. And on GitHub, I'm nzakis. And ESLint on GitHub is just ESLint. Thank you so much. I do want to mention GitHub real quickly. We have been mentioning Open Collective a lot as a way to sponsor people. Of course, you can also sponsor individuals and GitHub sponsors. There are other ways to sponsor people besides Open Collective. It's not the only resource out there. So just letting everyone know if people want to take money, find out where they want to take it and give it to them there. Help Nicholas get past 19% of his GitHub goal, his GitHub sponsors goal. Get him to 100%. No pressure. And you can do that at GitHub slash nzakis. Thank you, Justin, for the shout out. Good idea. That's Z-A-K-A-S or Z-A-K-A-S for the Americans in the audience. With that, Nicholas, this has been an excellent conversation. Thank you so much. We're now going to give at least 2% of this podcast back to other people in Spotlight, the part where we talk about things or people or projects that just really helped us along that we think need a little love. So, Justin Dorfman, what is your Spotlight today? After months of anticipation and waiting, I finally got What If 2. 
Randall Monroe's follow-up to What If One. He is the creator of XKCD, one of my favorite illustrators and just a very funny and brilliant guy. So his new book just dropped, What If Two. You'll see an airplane with a T-Rex biting into it. It's very, very entertaining and head scratching and all the above. So give him some love. I got it on Amazon. So, I mean, obviously everything's on Amazon, but yeah. What If Two by Randall Monroe. Awesome. Mine is David Troops, who you can find on Patreon at patreon.com slash Buttercup Festival. You may recognize Buttercup Festival as a webcomic that's also linked on XKCD's homepage. It is one of the most influential webcomics in my life. I've been following it since I was a teenager, and I absolutely love getting a postcard every single month in the mail from the creator with a new watercolor and a poem on the back. How awesome is that? From David Troops, who recently moved back to Massachusetts. Welcome back to this side of the pond, although I doubt you listen to this podcast. Either way, great art. Nicholas, what is your spotlight today? My spotlight is a book. It's called WebAssembly, The Definitive Guide by Brian Slitton. And I read a lot of books and a lot of technical books, and most are garbage. And this one was so good, I was upset when it was done. It really gives you a great overview of the state of WebAssembly in 2022. And what I really liked about it was it wasn't just here is how to use WebAssembly, write some REST, compile it to WebAssembly, run it in the browser, but it also looked at all of the different places that WebAssembly is starting to be used and peeks into the future where WebAssembly might actually make Docker unimportant. And I just thought it was a tremendously comprehensive book that covered anything you could possibly want to know about WebAssembly as it stands in 2022. Awesome. Nicholas, it's been a real pleasure to have you on again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for raising another clarion call for sponsoring dependencies, this time, even if you are an open source project. That is awesome. Listeners, if you enjoyed this and you have any comments, feel free to send them along to us. You can do so at discourse at sustainoss.org, our forum. You can email podcast at sustainoss.org. You can tweet at sustainoss. If you like this podcast, you can always just like us again on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, whatever, wherever podcasts are stored, saved, and sold. If you have any ideas about other guests you'd like to hear on or any topics you think, please do send us an email. We always appreciate hearing. If you want to reach out to Nicholas, his link will be in the show notes where you could find on podcast. That's the same OSS.org. And with that, Nicholas, thank you so much. This was excellent. Best of luck and keep in touch. Semicolon. Nah, like what you did there. Thanks, Nicholas. 